to Project Vox Populi, where the people speak their truth. Terry Lovelace is a 64-year-old lawyer and former assistant attorney general. In 2012, a routine x-ray of his leg found an anomalous bit of metal the size of a fingernail with two tiny wires attached. What followed were horrific nightmares, spontaneous recall, an intrusive thought surrounding the 1977 camping trip he took with a friend to Devil's Den State Park in northern Arkansas. For fear of losing his job and his standing in the legal community, he kept this secret for 40 years. But the 2012 discovery of this object, one and a half inches deep in his thigh, initiated a flood of nightmares he could not control. His poor health and the horrific memories were the catalysts to come forward and finally disclose what happened back in 1977. Greetings, I'm your host, Mel Fambergas at Veritas Radio. If you want to listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. Tonight, this is a very special occasion with three segments, three hours. And if you want to get in touch with me, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. I always love to hear from you. Terry Lovelace was born in 1954 and spent six years in the United States Air Force. He has a bachelor's degree in psychology and a law degree from University of Michigan School of Law. He was in private practice until he entered government service for the U.S. Territory of American Samoa. He was also an assistant attorney general for the state of Vermont, where he sat on their board of medical practice until retiring medically in January 2012. Terry Lovelace joins us directly from Dallas, Texas. Hello, Terry, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? Good, Mel. Thank you. It's great pleasure to be here. It's my pleasure. Did I say your birthday correct, 1954? It's actually 55, uh, but I'm so close. I, I got a birthday here in about 45 days or so, so yeah, that's fine. Just wanted to make sure. But you and I spoke for a few hours the other day. You came to me a few weeks ago and shared your story, and I thought it was compelling enough to bring you to Vox Populi. As you know, it's an offshoot of Veritas Radio in which people tell their truth. Why don't we begin without losing any time at all? I want to be able to spend these two hours discussing your story in chronological order. Would you like to start when you discovered what happened, the 1977 part, or should we go all the way back to your childhood? You know, I, I think I would be more comfortable starting with uh, the discovery of the piece of metal. I know that's a little bit out of out of chronological order, but... Uh, but that's what triggers you, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So in, in 2012, in October of 2012, I took a fall down some stairs and, and thought I might have, uh, and maybe cracked a kneecap or might have broken my leg. And uh, I went to, I get my medical care through the Veterans Administration. And I went to the VA hospital in Dallas and had my uh, had my leg X-rayed, and I could I could tell something was going on because the the tech was confused or acted confused, and you know what should have normally been two shots of my leg, um, she ended up taking eight films in total, 
And she asked me, are you sure you've not suffered an accident or a shrapnel wound of any kind? Because uh, it looks like you had a piece of metal in your leg. And I was, I was surprised. I, well, that's news to me. And she said, well, I've, I've asked a radiologist to come down and take a look at the film. So a few minutes later, a radiologist arrived, uh, looked at the film on the view box, and walked right over and poked my thigh and says, it'll be right here. And I said, what will be right here? He says, the scar. There'll be a scar right here where it entered your body. And he uh, wanted to look at my leg. He, I, I don't have a scar. He examined my knee for 20 minutes. He got a black light and darkened the room to look for a scar. And there is none. Uh, and he finally said, well, I guess you were born with the thing. I asked him, I said, doctor... In, in your experience, how many times have you seen this happen? Uh, and he said, in 23 years of radiology, never. I've never seen this happen. There's always a corresponding car, scar where the skin is breached and the object enters, enters the body. So that, that was the beginning. Um, it was the knowledge that I had that in my leg and there was no way to reasonably account for it. Some, for some reason, it triggered uh, nightmares. It triggered just a horrendous episode of my life that my wife and I went through in 1977 and 78 and uh, returned things back to the way they were. They, it was just, uh, it's just terrible. Did you have those, well... Pieces of metal. I don't want to say implants yet. We'll, we can call them later. But were they removed eventually? They were. Did you go back to the radiologist? I didn't go back to that radiologist, but I did seek a second radiologist. Um, I, I didn't want to go back to the VA's radiologist uh, for a variety of reasons. And I, I sought out a civilian radiologist that I knew uh, in Vermont who was willing to look at both films for me. She saw the before films and she saw the after films and uh, gave me her opinion that uh, what was there when she viewed the film 19 days earlier was gone. And in its stead were two small links of wire. And that were so, left behind? <sighs> accidentally, I believe. I believe the intent was to remove it all. I woke up on... Uh, the 16th of November with uh, just unbelievable pain in the top of both of my legs. Uh, and I had a, uh, a wound, I'll call it, uh, like a little bump, a lesion, uh, oddly square-shaped in the center of my, uh, of course, my, exactly at the same point on, on both legs. Uh, and my, my legs hurt deep, you know, deep under the skin. By the following day, the bruises started to appear, and I had just, you know, an outline uh, of bruising all the way around these this, these red marks, and um, I I was <laughs> I was warned that if I went to pursue uh, this book or if I went to speak publicly about it, that uh, these things would be removed. While I slept, and they were. Let's discuss that part later, the warning that you get, that you were given. And it, so the new doctor didn't give you any new information as to what he thought these 
things were? No, no, no. Every every I guess I've seen a total of four or five doctors, uh, and they are all baffled by the fact that I, uh, this piece of metal was in my leg, is in my leg, was in my leg, uh, without breaching the skin. You never saw the late Dr. John Lear, did you? No, I did Roger, not. Roger, Roger Lear. Roger, yes. But in 2013, when I was I was struggling with this, uh, I went online and and saw him. I think he passed away the following year. But yes, at that at that time, I think he was in South America. But uh, yeah, I, I I read all about his work and share some things in common with the people that he uh, that he took care of in the I call them artifacts that he removed. Uh, we all kind of shared the same thing, and that is there's no scar. That's the common denominator. There, there, there's no scar to account for the uh, item being underneath your skin. And you never detected any radio signal coming out of your leg? <sighs> you know, that's funny you should ask. Uh, not a radio signal, but, uh, well, yeah, a radio signal. The, the, the item was removed in November 2017. Uh, in January of 2018, uh, I was filming a documentary with Nine Diamond Productions and the Kling Brothers uh, in San Antonio, Texas, and they wanted to document uh, what happened to me and, and my story. We, we were filming, and I had a uh, microphone on my lapel. It, it fell into my lap, and when it did, their sound guy grabbed his headset, pushed it to his ears, and kind of hushed everyone. And he's listening, and I took the, the microphone, I picked up the microphone, and I held it right over my knee. And he said, now I hear music. And uh, it was a radio station from Mexico. Now, the sound guy and Barry Kling, one of the co-producers, said, that's absolutely impossible. I guess at the time, the microphone wasn't, you know. Was I'm not a I'm not an electronics guy, so I don't know. But it, it it wasn't hooked up to anything that would, you know, retrieve a signal. So it it shouldn't have happened. Uh, they have it all documented on film. But, so could it be that the implant was transmitting something? I I think that has to be. You know, I also have these anomalies uh, underneath the knee, below my knee, I should say. Uh, and they're arranged kind of in a flower petal pattern. And when you look at them from the side, from the side angle, they look like, uh, like little round balls. Uh, but if you look at the shot head on, they are actually disc. Uh, so the, the doctor said, that, you know, these have the same density as bone. But he said, you know, there, there shouldn't be any bone in the middle of your calf. He says, Bone doesn't spontaneously just sprout and grow in the middle of a muscle. He also noted that uh, he found the arrangement that not only if this was just an anomalous happening, uh, it happened in such a way that they arranged themselves in a pattern. Uh, and he found that was very strange. And those, those items are still in my leg. Now, how do you know you don't have implants in other parts of your body? I don't, I don't have a, I don't have a clue. Did you say to me the other day that after the implants, 
or implant? Was it implant or implants? It's implants. Well, I was told that I have one in each leg. Did you tell me that after they were removed, your health changed? Yes, my health has deteriorated since then. In what way? Uh, well, a dramatic weight loss. Um, when I began collecting notes and preparing everything for the book in 2016, uh, I experienced a weight loss, and that coincided with some pretty horrific nightmares. Uh, and there were a couple where, you know, I kind of got the message that I shouldn't be writing this book. I shouldn't be doing this. I shouldn't speak out. But after whatever was in my leg was removed, my, my weight loss picked up dramatically. And I'm, uh, I, I normally, my weight was normally around 240 since I, I quit running in 2005. Uh, and I'm down to 150 pounds and, I, and I'm struggling to keep weight on. You told me you, you take uh, supplements every day or what do you call those yes. drinks? Yeah, yeah. Nutrition shakes or something. They mm -hmm. doctor recommended. I, I I drink four of them a day. And still, you're not gaining weight. And still, I'm not gaining weight. Now, you know, I eat as much as I can. Uh, you know, and and I, and I concentrate on eating uh, nutrient dense food. But what is the is correlation a, you think between the removal of these implants and your weight loss? I'm not sure. It, to me, it seems like punishment. You know, like punishment for. Uh, but doctors, what are they telling you scientifically? What's going on in your body? Nothing. My my physician ordered uh, every possible test you can think of because there are a host of bad things that can manifest as weight loss. Uh, most of the cancer, most really really bad things, and. We, she ruled out every one of those. Uh, did a you know a, a broad test of my of my blood to to rule out you know, any other kind of possibility. And uh, other than the weight loss, I am healthy. You know, I I walk twenty minutes a day, uh, but I don't want to walk too far or it'll accelerate the weight loss. But other than the weight loss, and, and she's baffled. She has no idea. So let's go back, back in time now. This is 2017, November. I didn't know it was just a mere few months ago that you realized this. But is this what triggered you coming out with the story? Why now? Why after 40 years? In 2012, when this was discovered, um, I, I was in shock i just i just had trouble processing how this piece of metal could have gotten my leg but in the back of my mind i think i knew and i i, I really i really struggled with that i went online and, and i read things by dr roger lear uh and a couple other people at that time there wasn't a whole lot about uh, implants on the internet i think it's, it's better today uh so roger lear was the main source of, of my information and what struck me was uh, the common denominator being that there's no no scar, no nowhere where the skin was breached for for the objects to enter. Uh, that that knowledge uh, just triggered 
this flood of horrendous nightmares. Over, over the past 40 years, my wife and I have learned since 1977, 1977, 1978, we had had our fill of uh, UFOs or anything like that. And it became a a non-topic in our house. My wife and I had this express agreement. We just didn't discuss it because every time we did, uh, I'd have a recurrence of these nightmares and I'd wake up screaming. So I, I learned I think my wife and I were conditioned not to talk about this. And I had I had every intention not to talk about it. Uh, but I feel compelled to. My my friend that I went on this camping trip with in 1977, you know, uh, this thing, this incident that we went through cost him his life. Let's go back now in time. Let's go back to the beginnings because you had these experiences as a child and you discovered that later under hypnosis, but let's just go back in time. The first incident that I can remember, uh, and my sister was able to bear this out, I was eight years old. We were living in St. Louis, Missouri, uh, kind of an urban, you know, older uh, down south St. Louis city area. And uh, I was in my backyard. And let me back up. Let me back up one second. Uh, at the same time, that this event I'm about to describe happened. I'm having these bizarre dreams about four monkeys. I know it sounds absurd, but but I'm a child, and I'm viewing this through a child's eye. And there were these four monkeys, three feet high or less, that would come into my room, and they all wore the same mask with this weird grin. And the same one every time would say, come on with us, Terry, come with us, and we'll go play. And as soon as I'd scream, they would vanish into shadows. Now, at the time that this happens, uh, I'm in my backyard on a Saturday afternoon. Uh, it's, it's May. And I'm in my backyard, and my mom has the windows open. She's inside. I can hear the television. You know, there are normally people around everywhere and I, w- I had a bow and arrow, and I was no- I was loading an arrow into the notch of my bowstring, looking down, and I saw a shadow, uh, a circular shadow, creep across me, and I thought you know, it must be a cloud, and I looked straight up, and over my head, I-, I would estimate 50 feet, was this absolutely gorgeous uh, UFO. Uh, I don't know. What words to describe it other than it was silver, uh, it was shiny, there were no bolts, no markings, no portals. Disc-shaped? A perfect circular disc, yes. And it, it, it's odd. Now, I can recall uh, that there was an odd ionized smell of air. Uh, the hair on my arms stood up. And for some reason, I felt the need to lie down on my back and look up at this thing. Now, that, ma- that makes no sense whatsoever. The smell as if it's after it rained? Uh, well, the, the, the lawn had been mowed the day before. So, uh, but I had the, the inexplicable urge to lie down to look at this thing. And that's exactly what I did. 
And, and looking up, I, I watched it, and it wobbled a little bit in the breeze. You know, I'm not a, it was hard to gauge time. Uh, I, I'm sure that I watched this thing for at least several minutes. Then it tilted, it listed to, to one side, and there was uh, some trees in back of the home, back of the house, and it shot off. It shot off in a straight line and just vanished in the blink of an eye. Uh, it didn't disappear. It traveled. And I stood up, and I'm staring at this hole in the sky, and I scream, Mom! And, of course, my mother thinks, oh, my God, he's hurt or something. And my mother comes running out. What's wrong? What's wrong? I said, did you see it? Did you see it, Mom? It was so cool. Did you see it? I said, you know, I don't know what you're talking about. Come on inside. You're yelling. The neighbors will think you've lost your mind. Uh, she, by the arm, dragged me inside and, and sat me down at the kitchen table and said, now, what, what happened, Terry? And I told her, I said, Mom, I saw a flying saucer. And she was quick to say, Terry, I don't know what you saw, but I can tell you, you did not see a flying saucer. And as a child, I couldn't, I couldn't wrap my head around why she wouldn't believe me. You know, I, I, I didn't lie. I didn't make up stories as a child. Uh, but she said it's not a flying saucer. She went as far as to get a uh, family little mini encyclopedia thing and showed me pictures of airplanes. And uh, uh, I, I mean, I knew what balloons, I knew what dirigibles were. Uh, it, was, it was none of those things. This was something different. Very different. And my, uh, I finally said, well, I guess it, it could have been a jet. But saying it didn't change the reality. I saw something that was, that was just unidentifiable. And seeing that object triggered nightmares. And, and I had, uh, again, a spate of horrific nightmares uh, and the four, the four monkeys that I mentioned earlier, you know, featured prominently in these nightmares. And I would have a, a, a nightmare would play out in a sequence. And a lot of times it was impossible for me to wake up or scream until the thing had run its entire course. Uh, and eventually, uh, were they I dreams? Were they dreams or were they actually encounters with greys and this was sleep paralysis? I, I have no doubt that this was, I was awake. Um, these things were greys. Uh, I believe that. I believe they were greys. And I believe that either they took me or at some point I went with them voluntarily. Because their plea was always the same. The one in the center would step forward and say, come on, Terry, come, come with us and we'll play. And, and later on, I would have memories of this petite woman and some toys and other children being there uh, and in kind of a play setting. But that didn't come until much later. The immediate fallout was just the... Uh, the Horrific nightmares. Those those lasted for a good year, a solid year. And this is the earliest recollection. This is this is the the first time. That's the, it's the I don't know what may have happened earlier, but this is all that I can recall. And you were how old in what year, more or less? I was eight. It was nineteen sixty three. 
And what happened after? Well, afterward, a um, couple things. I, I felt I didn't want to be outside after dark, which was unusual. I mean, when the street lights came on, I, I, I headed for home. I also didn't feel comfortable in uh, outdoor places. I didn't want to be out in the middle of a ball field by myself. Uh, I didn't. I didn't care to be outside in the open. I, I of course, I obviously had a nighttime. Just became something I dreaded. I, I dreaded it because I didn't know if this was going to be another night of, you know, waking up screaming and you know scaring the hell out of my whole family, or you know, or was I going to be able to sleep? Uh, you know, my grades suffered, slipped a little bit during that year. My uh, folks actually took me to a physician. They took me to the family doctor. You know, to, to, to get me fixed and, uh, you know, put an end to this uh, spaceship stuff is my uh, my dad had a word for it. The family doctor sat me down and said, now, Terry, I want you to tell me what you saw. And he asked my dad to leave the room and he leaned forward and he says, you can trust me. I'm your doctor. I want you to be well. And against my better judgment, I trusted the guy. And I said, doctor. It was so cool. It was perfectly round, and it was silver, and it had no wings, and there were no markings on it anywhere, and no place for the wheels to come down. And I went on and on and on, and he listened intently, you know, and nodded his head, and never really betrayed what he was thinking. And when, when I was finished, he said, okay, well, let's call Dad back in. So he called my, my dad came back in and joined us. And the doctor had a diagnosis. He says, what we have here is an overactive imagination and uh, overexposure to uh, space ghosts and Johnny Quest. Uh, you know, you need to watch. Uh, uh, he needs to watch something, something better on television. He needs to watch some healthier TV. And, of course, you know, like he gave me the standard you know, why don't you get on your bike, get outside, play some ball? You know, I'm like, eh, I've heard all that before. Uh, so my, my parents' idea of healthier television was Three Stooges reruns. So in about seven weeks of Three Stooges reruns, uh, my, my television restrictions were lift, lifted and I could you know, watch whatever I wanted to watch. But that's my, – my folks were very frustrated. Uh, my, my dad uh, – Called me into, after a particularly terrible nightmare. My dad called me, came home, called me into this into my room with my mom. They shut the door. My dad said, "I have good news. I've got some special tape that they use for these things, and it'll keep away monkeys, monkey men. Uh, you know, these monkey men, as you call them, this this will keep them away. And you know, I'm the first thing I think of is, oh my God, this means they are real." So, you know, I'm a very confused eight-year-old at this point. Uh, he put some of this uh, squishy black tape around the window, uh, you know, kind of brushed his hands off and said, there you go, son. You are all set. You won't be bothered by any more monkey men. And I, I was eight, but I wasn't stupid. You know, I mean, I found a bag in the garage. It was, you know, weather stripping. Was your father in the military? He was in the military in, in the uh, 40s sometimes. Uh, he, he never spoke about his military service. I know that he never left the States, that he, uh, he guarded POWs in the state of Washington somewhere. 
but he never discussed military service. Did he ever believe you in the years that you experienced these things? Never. Well, you know, I I learned something from that from that uh, incident when I was eight years old, and that was that uh, adults would not believe. You know, they just simply would not believe me. Same with your mother. Same with my mother. Same with my sisters. Uh, you know, I, I had no reputation for making up stories. Uh, you know, I was you know, a pretty straight kid. I, I didn't lie. And I just couldn't fathom why they wouldn't listen to me and why they couldn't, uh, couldn't just even consider it. So when the second event happened, you know, I kept my mouth shut. And that happened when I was 11. That would have been 1966. And on, on this event, uh, I, you know, with the first event, I remember being disappointed. I couldn't see the top side of this thing. Well, 1966, I got to see it. Uh, I, I went to bed. It was a, a January night, and it was bitterly cold outside. Uh, I went to bed. My mom tucked me in. Normal evening uh, in all regards. Didn't watch anything spooky on television. Uh, just a typical night. Bed, had no trouble falling asleep. Sometime in the middle of the night, have no idea what the time was. I was, uh, I woke up, there were these brilliant flashes of white, yellow, and orange light through my window. And it lit up my room, you know, like, like a ball stadium at night. I mean, this, this was intense. There was also uh, a kind of a low bass droning noise, a mechanical sound, uh, a hum. And this, this hum was loud enough or not loud enough, strong enough that it, it reverberated in your chest. I mean, I could feel it in my chest. Uh, I could feel the bed shake. And I wasn't frightened. I, the thought to scream for my mom never crossed my mind. Uh, but I was curious. Uh, I noticed that, my, like I say, my bed was vibrating. Well, my, I had a desk. And it, it was nearer the window, and it was vibrating. And I had a, a, a collection of uh, model airplanes I put together. And uh, one of them, a little Voigt Corsair, vibrated and fell off onto the floor. And I remembered that. And I went to the window, and we had Venetian blinds and heavy drapes. I pulled back the drapes pulled, and opened the blinds, and outside of my second-story window, is this silver disc. Only this time, I can see the top side. Underneath, there's a cloud of what looks like dense fog and a dome in the center. And that's where the lights were, the lights were emitted from this dome. And they were so bright, it was like trying to look at the sun. And I was absolutely mesmerized. Never had an ounce of fear. Uh, and I recall that I took up the cur- I took the curtains and pulled them back, and I tucked them into the Venetian blind, so I could have a, a hands-free look at this thing. And then I remember the sudden disinterest came over me. And as crazy as that sounds, I, I just simply thought, "Well, that's neat." Uh, and I went back to bed. 
and, and it was a weird night's sleep because it was unusual. There, there, there was nothing between me closing my eyes and opening them the next morning. There, there, there was no, no dream time in the middle. It was as if I blinked, and it was morning. But I felt fine. I felt refreshed, uh, and I didn't immediately remember what was going on, what happened to me the previous evening until my feet hit the floor. And I saw the little airplane on the ground, and I was like, oh, my God, somebody could step on that. I, I picked it up, and then I saw the window. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Now I remember. Now I know what happened. I know what happened. And I, I could believe that, you know, the family dog slept through this. You know, uh, it was January, but there were no Christmas lights outside. You know, there was no fire engine or anything. So I sat down for breakfast with my, with my family the next, that morning. And I asked, so did anybody see those lights outside? What was that? Was that a fire engine or something, you think? You know, I was, nope, never saw a thing, slept right through it. No, nothing. And that, so that pe baffles pe people were still rolling their eyes at you when you were telling these stories at home. Yes. Uh, by, by this time, uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't run downstairs and say, did anyone see the disc? Uh, I was pretty careful about what I said. I, you know, did anybody see a fire engine? See those lights? Nope. Uh, and I, I, I wasn't about to bring up what I saw. But I, I can tell you that as an eight-year-old, I thought it was just the, the, the coolest thing. It was, it was just awesome. Uh, and, and I thought, like, you know, this wasn't happenstance. This thing visited me twice. You know, it, it's not like it made a wrong turn, you know, and ended up back at my house. Uh, I, I I had the feeling that it was there to visit me. I, I was going to ask you, at this point, why do you think they were coming to, quote unquote, visit you? Because obviously they were not lost. You know, I, I, I've given that a lot of thought. And in my days as a prosecuting attorney, uh, I... I uh, prosecuted sex crimes and child molesters and the like. And, and I recall there was a pattern in a lot of, uh, you know, neighbor abusing children, in a lot of child abuse cases, cases where there was a third party outside the family that would come in and identify, you know, a, a family member as a target. And they would what they call groom them. They would say that. The, the uh, offender would ingratiate himself with the family uh, and then devote time to the little boy to you know, buy him things, take him to the ball game, become his friend, uh, and be, you know, become friends on an inappropriate level, child to adult. And uh, I think that's what they were – I think they were grooming me. I, I, I really do. I don't know. You know, it's like this, this thing in my leg. I have no idea to know when it was there. Not as sexual predators per se, but they had their mission, their objective. What do you think the objective was? Uh, well, again, and I just, I, I didn't think there were sexual predators. But I just used it as, as a. No, I understand a, that, but the process was similar. As yeah. you said, in, in trying to be friendly, trying to make you comfortable, until you basically say, "Yeah, take me with you." Yeah. Yeah. Those, those, those dreams that I had of, uh, of uh, another peculiar thing happened after the 19, after the first event. And that was, 
uh, we, we had a nice lady in a neighborhood uh, who was uh, Asian. She was Japanese uh, American and all the kids in the neighborhood knew her and she would bake things for us. Uh, she lived by herself. She had an amazing garden and just was a very kind woman. And I had a newfound fear of Asian women, uh, especially elderly Asian women. And I felt extremely uncomfortable around her. And I, you know, I, I, I quit going by her house. I stopped seeing her altogether. Because I think that in this process, when I was being groomed for whatever purpose, uh, I think the entity that did that was four feet tall and, and maybe had some characteristics similar to, to an Asian person. So you connected those dots, and that's why you were scared of elderly Asian women. I, I didn't connect the dots until I was a bit older. Uh, all I knew was that uh, I didn't want to be around her anymore. It's like the fear of being out in the open or the fear of the dark. It, it was hard to connect the dots because I was so awestruck when I saw these things. I couldn't believe that there would be anything negative associated with them. You know, I, I thought they were, you know, like our benign space brothers. You know, and I... Uh, felt that they, they chose me for whatever reason and felt very proud of that. So you felt specially in a good way or in a bad way? No, in a good way. In a good way. I, I, I did. I sure did. So what happened next? Is the next event when you were in the military? Yes. Well, there, there were some nightmares following the 1966 event, but, you know, they were, they were there and gone. Uh, and the next, the next event happened in 1975. I was uh, assigned to Whiteman Air Force Base in western Missouri. So you were with the uh, U.S. Air Force? Yes. Yes, I enlisted at age 18 uh, purely to get the GI Bill for purposes of attending college. So I get my college paid for. My folks couldn't afford it. And uh, uh, I enlisted in the Air Force. I was trained as a medic, as an EMT. And drove an ambulance. And I chose to work the night shift. And the reason for that was I was taking night evening classes. Uh, and I could go to class from six to eight, have dinner with my wife, go to work, you know, work 11 to eight, come home. And people who work the night shift understand after a while it falls into a rhythm. And, and I was comfortable with that rhythm. And I was paired with a guy from, from Flint, I'll call him Tobias. And Toby and I were not only co-workers, we were, we were best of friends. Uh, and that was because we worked well together. We were first responders. We had been through some, you know, some kind of dangerous situations, an airplane crash and some other things. And, uh, you know, I knew he had my back and vice versa. So we were close friends. He chose the night shift because he was fascinated with the sky. This kid, I call him a kid, we were both early 20s. Uh, his goal was to attend uh, University of Michigan and get a degree in physics. Uh, he took all the physics classes that were available on a little satellite campus on, on base. You know, I just aced them all. He was brilliant when it came to math. Uh, but on warm nights, we would sit outside and watch the stars. 
you would point to the different constellations and the like. So, and that was my friend Tobias. So 1975, uh, January, again, a bitterly cold night, uh, we had a red phone called the crash phone. And when it rang, uh, it meant something bad had happened and we, we were needed somewhere. And we were playing, we were, remember, we were playing hearts. Crash phone rang. We dropped our cards in unison. Uh, I ran to the ambulance and started it on the ambulance ramp just outside the door, pulled some things together while Toby's on the phone, on the crash phone uh, with a wax uh, pen, getting all the, all the information. He comes out and, you know, we take off. So he says we're headed to Kilo 5. It's about 18 miles. I, I don't have a great sense of direction. So uh, Toby was always the navigator uh, and I was the driver. So uh, we we drove to this Kilo 5. Kilo 5, I should explain, uh, at the time, Whiteman Air Force Base housed uh, nuclear-equipped, nuclear-armed uh, B-52s, a squadron, uh, and then a squadron of accompanying KC-135 tankers. I mean, it's the Cold War. It's a long way to Russia. So, and they also had a flight of Minutemen 2 ICBMs. And these were solid fuel, uh, second generation solid fuel rockets, about 60 feet long. Uh, they each were tipped with uh, three nuclear warheads, independently targeted. Um, it's just a very lethal thing. And, uh, and there's a photograph that I show that of of Kilo Five actually, and all you can see is a chain link fence, and it's in the middle of a soybean field uh, in rural Missouri. And for anybody who's listening about your implants, about these pictures, I have them all on our website. Just look for our this interview, and you'll be able to see them there. Yes, if if you look at the photograph, you'll, you'll see a blue dome. That dome caps. The launch tube. So that, that, that's where the missile was located. And you'll also see a trapezoid concrete building. That is how missile maintenance mechanics access the, uh, the missile. Uh, it's it an odd thing. You, you open the door, there was a coat rack, a desk, a chair, and an elevator with one button down. And it would take you 70 feet down and, uh, that's how the missile missile mechanics gained access to it. That was our call, was that a missile mechanic had fallen and uh, we needed help, needed transport. So we were on our way, but it was an unusual call in that it was very slim on facts, other than we, we knew a guy had fallen. But normally we'd get, you know, broke a leg or fell on his head or you know, something a little more than what they give us, but it was... Toby and I noted the facts were very slim. So I'm driving uh, probably faster than I needed to be. I'm driving uh, through through rural Missouri and uh, on, on paved roads. And we're about two miles from the scene. And I note this orange glow on the horizon. And it was just a weird orange pulsating glow. And we, we came to a roadblock about a mile from the scene, and there were two guys, security police cars, blocking traffic both ways. It's 2 o'clock in the morning in the middle of 
you know, winter in the middle of nowhere in Missouri. There was no traffic. Uh, and I asked the guy, what's going on? He's like, you know, you tell me, brother. I, I don't have the slightest idea. And we could see that that orange glow was caused by a combination of the exhaust fumes from about a dozen security police vehicles mixing with uh, the bitter cold air. And it just the exhaust fumes and the cold air kind of hung with uh, as a cloud with all of these flashing red overheads from all these cars uh, flashing out of sync. And it just made for a very eerie uh, scene. Not usual. I mean, the only overheads that should have been there would have been ours. Uh, or maybe a security police car joined us for whatever reason. But there was certainly no, no reason for 12 cars to be out there. When we got on the scene, there was a guy, there was a captain standing in the middle of the road. And he told me, he says, I rolled down my window and he said, Sergeant, park it over there. Stay off the radio. Stay in your ambulance. Your guy's walking and talking. Uh, but until I say so, nobody goes in and nobody comes out. Yes, sir. Well, whatever you say. I parked the ambulance and it, and it was difficult because the inside windows, the temperature, uh, our inside windows were frosting up, and I we couldn't see a whole lot. And, and I asked Toby, I said, well, what do you think is going on? He says, I don't know, but I'm going to go see. So, you know, in violation of this captain's order, he throws on a parka and slips out of the ambulance. And about five, maybe ten minutes max later, he opens the driver's side door grabs me by my left shoulder and starts pulling me. And he's excited and he's half laughing and half yelling. And he's saying, you have got to see this. You have got to see this. And he's pulling me out of the ambulance. Uh, and I th grabbed a parka. I threw on a parka and I went out and see what was going on. And, you know, there's these guys with them, 16s, and some are walking around and some are looking up and some are crouched by their vehicles. And it's just a very strange scene. Uh, and the captain is still standing in the middle of the road. He's got a radio in one hand and a pistol in the other. And he's looking up. And I turned my head and I looked up. And over Kilo 5, probably 50 feet, there is this black diamond-shaped thing about the size of a full-size van. It was matte in color, uh, and it was absolutely still. I mean, it was frozen right where it was in place. And, you know, your mind plays tricks on your mind. That, you know, at first I'm looking for wires. I mean, like, how can, how can this be? And you're not aware that Dr. Jonathan Reed's story, right? Uh, not at all. Okay. As I said, UFOs and UFO literature uh, has, has been kind of a taboo topic. Okay. So... We watched this thing for eh, maybe another 10 minutes. And, you know, I, I did the best visual inspection of it I could. And, you know, there were no markings of any kind. There, was no, there were no doors or uh, seams. I mean, well, there were, there were the seams were the facets were folded over, but, but nothing really. Wheels would come down or indicate a doorway of any kind. Uh, and it just hung there until it shot off. And it shot off uh, 
I mean, it was as fast as for, from from a dead stop to an incredible acceleration. It was gone. Literally in the blink of your eye, you would have missed it if you had you not been staring at it. And the captain walks over to me. And everybody's kind of walking around smiling and like, whoa, what was that? Uh, you know, this, this captain, I thought, you know, I thought the guy was going to be angry. We were outside of our ambulance. And I mean, you know, for a minute or two, he kind of put rank aside and we were, we were both just standing there saying, holy cow, what did we just see? So a minute or two later, everybody snaps back into their respective roles and he says, all right, then. Uh, and he had some the four airmen are guarding the gate to open the gate for us. And we went in. Our guy, our patient, was uh, seated in that little trapezoid-shaped room with his foot up on a trash can. He'd broken his ankle. But he was he was just dying to know what was going on outside. Here he's he's sitting inside this trapezoid building without any windows. He can hear something is going on outside. Uh, and he's not concerned about his ankle at all. All he wants to know is what happened, what I missed. Tell me, you guys, you guys got to tell me everything. So we're, we're on our way back to the hospital, and I recall this is important. Uh, we had Wipen had a ton of these uh, Huey helicopters, little ones like they used in Vietnam, and they were used to ferry uh, missile jocks, missile. Uh, officers to and from, you know, launch control facilities and a variety of uses. But we had a, there were a bunch of them on base. We had, as we are headed back to base, there are about a dozen helicopters uh, all going f- like full tilt, uh, relatively low, I'd say, you know, 1,500 feet. And they went zooming by us, headed towards Kilo 5 as we're halfway back. And, you know, the mystery we always wondered was why, why weren't the helicopters there first? I mean, they, they should have been there before the security police. They certainly should have been there before we were. Uh, and that's just, I mean, must be above my pay grade because it, it didn't make, make any sense. So back at the, back at the hospital, we delivered our patient and our CO is there. We had, we had a good commanding officer. And he grabbed us, and we went into his office, and he asked to see my report. And uh, he he said, did you write a clean report? Of course, I knew what he meant. I said, of course. Toby and I said the same words in unison. Yes, sir. They took my report, looked at it, seemed pleased, took a black magic marker. And except for my time of departure from the hospital, he marked through with a black magic marker, redacted all of the times, all of the relevant times, time of arrival, time that we picked up our patient, time that we, everything that was relevant time-wise, he obliterated, went to a copier and burned two copies and gave us a, a photocopy to hand in and said, you know, put this one in, and we called it the slide, you know, put, put, file this one. Um, and then he put the original in his desk. And he asked us, he says, you know, what did you guys see out there? And he was re- really curious to know. And we told him, and he said, well, can you draw it? And I'm, like, and I'm not much of an artist. Uh, and drawing a diamond thing is, is hard to convey the three-dimension aspect of it uh, when you're only working with two dimensions. Toby, on the other hand, had counted 
the facets or panels on a side and was much better able to draw um, an image of it than I was. But he took he took both our drawings and slid them in his drawer along with our report and locked his drawer and says, all right, boys, listen. What you saw out there was a prototype. You know, and he might as well have winked his eye. We we knew well he he didn't know what was out there either. Uh, but he said, you know, that was a prototype. You're both smart guys. Uh, you know, I trust you to keep your mouth shut. Uh, you know, don't talk about this. You know, it's something secret. Just don't say anything to anybody. You know the drill. And we were like, yes, sir. Uh, and with that, we were dismissed. And as we're as we're exiting the hospital. Here's a security police lieutenant and two enlisted guys interrogating the patient that we brought in and asking him questions. And he was the only guy out there that didn't see anything. So, you know, that, that struck us as humorous. Uh, left the hospital and, you know, couldn't wait to get home and tell our wives. We absolutely couldn't wait to talk about it. I mean, we didn't tell the press or anything, but amongst our little circle of friends, yeah, we, we talked about it. That was that was the first event. But, you know, in my mind's eye, I equated flying saucers, disc. Those things were UFOs. This was not a disc. Uh, so we were sure this had to be something from the Soviet Union spying on our on our missile site. That was kind of our our thought. The thought of it being anything extraterrestrial honestly never crossed our minds we really did believe it was something uh, either of ours that was super secret or something of theirs that was super secret but but no we didn't attribute it to anything extraterrestrial at all did you ever find out what that really was no no never heard a word about it even in your subsequent encounters they didn't tell you not one word about that about that incident, no. No, never. Is there anything else from this 1975 event, or would you like to proceed to the 19, was it 77? You know, I think that pretty much wraps up 75. Uh, uh, 77 started with uh, my, my buddy Tobias uh, had the bright idea that we go camping. He says, hey, hey, man, why don't, you know, I got a great idea. Why don't we go camping? And I told him, Toby, where you know where'd this come from? We're, we're, we're city kids. Uh, I never been. I had never been camping in my life. He had never been camping in his life. Uh, and he convinced me that we needed to go to this place called Devil's Den, which is in northwestern Arkansas, uh, in the Ozarks. And he said, "This is the place to go." And, uh, my argument, my counter argument, was like. Toby, we're already in the middle of nowhere. There are a dozen of state parks, you know, within an hour's drive of here. Why drive halfway across the state to go to this place? And, and he said, you know, well, look, this place, this, this place has it all. He says, you know, if, if you go to one of these campgrounds, you know, you might as well sit in the parking lot in the woods. He says, when we go out here, it's got these rock ledges and big open sky. And he says, we can find a place up high and I can star watch and you can, you know, uh, photograph. I had a new telephoto lens and a camera I wanted to try. Uh, you can you can photograph eagles which and the, and the moon, which were a couple of things of interest. 
He said, it'd just be a nice trip. He says, we'll go. We'll work the bugs out of it. And if we like it, then, then we'll bring our wives on the next trip. And, you know, maybe become a, a family uh, thing. And uh, uh, I was against the idea initially. But in, in 24 hours, uh, I, I, I kind of became obsessed with it. I, I mean, I, I really picked up on the idea and became kind of, well, not kind of, I became excited about it. And, uh, you know, our wives were like, you know, uh, you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense to drive halfway. What do you drive to Arkansas for if you want to go camping? Uh, but Toby's argument, I thought, was a good one. And uh, besides, he said, you know, the trip is half the half the adventure. So we went about uh, planning for this the way in our squadron, we were kind of the nerds of the squadron. And we went about planning this camping trip, uh, you know, like like. We do everything else you know, with a pencil and a piece of paper. Uh, so we made a list of everything that we needed and um, packed the car. The day rolled around and we were just on top of the world. I mean, we were absolutely elated. Uh, kissed our wives goodbye, hopped in my old Impala and headed on Double D Highway, headed south and uh, headed, headed for Arkansas. And we were going to go have a great time. So, and, and the entire trip, in retrospect, was, was just a series of missteps. You know, I, I'm three and a half hours into the drive. And in my mind's eye flashes the image of my camera, my film, my, my camera bag and the film and the tripod, everything, sitting on the kitchen counter. Oh, you left it behind. Oh, I'm thinking, no, I could not. I, that's impossible. I could not possibly have done that. And I told Toby, I said, Toby, I think I left my damn camera. And he said, and hold over, park this thing, pull it over, and let's look. We pulled over, and I, I knew it wasn't there. And we went, we unpacked the car. We went through everything, and of course, it wasn't there. And... uh you know, I was determined, well, you know, we're going to make this a trip to reconnoiter. Uh, you know, we'll go down, see how, see if we like it. And I'm not going to let this you know, ruin a trip. We'll go down and there's plenty of good things to do. We both like to hike and uh, see things and, you know, try to make the best of it. So we drove down to uh, Devil's Den and to the entry of the state park. And it was Toby's idea. And I, and I agreed with him, actually, that we not stay in the campground. And the reason for that was when you stay in the campground, it really is kind of like a parking lot in the middle of the woods. You know, there, there are a lot of people around you, you know, a lot of trees. Uh, we thought the best place that would suit both our needs would be something up high. We drove through the park and it dodged the, range, the, the park rangers. Uh, took a road and drove into uh, an area that was chained off. It was a nature preserve. There was a chain across the gate that was looped around and, and locked on itself. Uh, and it said no admittance, Arkansas, Parks and Recreation, something to that effect. And Toby hopped out of the car and was able to just pick this chain up and let it fall to the ground and we drove right on in. 
Uh, and I told Toby, I said, look, you know, there are lots of twists and turns here. Said, you know, keep track, make, make a map as we're going so we can find our way out of here whenever it's time to go home. And he said, yeah, that's a good idea. And, and he did that. He found a bank envelope and a pencil. And as we're driving, uh, he made, drew a little handmade map. Now, it seemed to me that Toby knew where to go. Because for somebody that had never been there before, he was like, we come to a fork and road. He's like, I think we should go this way. All right. All right. Uh, we crossed some rough terrain, but for the most part, we seemed to be going on an upward incline. And we came to a point uh, where we came to the edge of a meadow, I call it, uh, and it was up high. It was like a plateau, and it was just a field of uh, grass and late-blooming wildflowers of some kind, and it was just a you know, size of a football field or bigger. Uh, it was just a big open area with uh, surrounded by trees. Uh, there were some rock formations around, and this was going to be our campground. Toby suggested the place for us to park, and we, we pulled over next to the tree line, and uh, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna pitch our camp. Toby says, you know, let's, let's make camp. And I'm like, no, I don't want to make camp right now. I just drove six hours. I want to stretch my legs. Let's get out and, and hike a little bit. Uh, he was against the idea, but we did. And we carried a gallon of water. And we walked. Uh, we were probably five miles away from the car as the crow flies. But much more than that, considering the paths, the winding paths that we took. Uh, so we got to a point where there was a, a large rock, big rock, and... Uh, there was a canopy of trees over the top, and we both take a, we're going to take a rest, and we're both kicked back on this rock, and I lie down. The rock is cool to the touch, and the canopy of trees was, was pleasant. And I remember we were talking, and I remember I felt drowsy, and I thought, you know, I should be tired, but I shouldn't be drowsy, because th there's a difference between the two. This was definitely drowsy, sleepy, and unbelievable. Both of us fell asleep. And the next thing I knew, uh, before I even opened my eyes, Toby's kicking me, yelling, get up, get up with the expletives. Get up. And I wake up and kind of shake off the sleep. And I look around I'm like, whoa, it got late. And he's like, man, we had got to hustle and make it back to camp, or we're going to be stuck out in these woods all night. And that was a frightening thought. Uh, and I'm, I'm glad we had Toby there, because I, I would have gone back a totally different way, and we'd have been, you know, lost. Uh, but he was able to navigate, and we made it back to the car, to the crest of the meadow, right? It's kind of a, it's a little bit twilightish, sun maybe just about to slip down. So we hustled to the car. Uh, and proceeded to put the camp together, something, you know, before this time we'd only done in our minds, but we, we delegated task. You know, Toby had kids. He put together kids' toys. So he was going to be the engineer and put together the tent and pretty much take care of everything except firewood, and firewood would be my job. And that's when I discovered I, I left the hatchet, 
the camp lantern that a neighbor had lent us and a gallon of, uh, of fuel left sitting in my garage. And, you know, we, we were just not that inept. Uh, it was just odd. Toby uh, had a list of things to bring, and he only brought about half of what, what his allocation to bring was. So it, it was an odd, it's an odd trip. We, I assembled the... It's almost as if you were pushed to get there. We were pushed to get there. That's exactly the feeling. I, I genuinely felt pushed, shoved. That's the right word. Uh, we were so concerned about getting there that, you know, we had disregard for the, the important things. And as I said, I forgot a hatchet, so I, I piled as much, uh, you know, bits and pieces of bark and twigs and leaves and sticks as I could, uh, divided it into two lots and thought, you know, I've got enough, enough to make it through, you know, when this burns out, we'll call it a night and go to bed. So I, I lit the campfire and it went up with a rush, you know, from all the, all the dry leaves and stuff and, you know, I, I burned us some hot dogs, and we had some uh, some warm water to drink, and kind of uh, we, we had air mattresses, one apiece, and we kind of kicked back around the campfire and was kind of in, enjoying the thing. And, and I remember saying to Toby, I said, "Well, this must be the allure of camping. This must be why people enjoy it, because it was kind of pleasant." Um, and we're talking and laughing, and the conversation dies down. And I remember I noticed that the tree frogs and the crickets that were really, really loud uh, an hour ago or so uh, were gone. Uh, the, the whole forest was dead silent. And that kind of unnerved me a little bit. And I asked Toby, I said, man, it's really quiet out here. What happened to everything? And he's like, oh, you know, we made a lot of noise. You know, just wait. They'll, they'll be back in an hour. You know, just wait. Well, you know, they never did come back. Um, but that thought unnerved me. Um, we're kicked back on this air mattress, these air mattresses, one apiece, watching the sky. And it was a beautiful night to watch the sky. I mean, there wasn't a cloud in the sky. It was a crystal clear night. Uh, the stars with, without light pollution, the stars were just terrific. And we're, we're just kicked back and watching and having small talk and something catches Toby's eye to his left. And he's like, Hey, check that out. And I look over and here are three stars, three bright stars sitting on the horizon. And I said, Toby, what are those? And he said, you know, I don't know every constellation. I don't know every star configuration. But he said, those are not stars. And we agreed, you know, well, that's not, that can't be an aircraft. There's no aircraft that has that triangular configuration of lights. Uh, I was dead still. So we're talking and speculating about what this could be. And it starts to move. And we got excited. And we watched it. And it, it lifted up slowly. And then made a turn, uh, like it was on an axis. And it turned a, about 180 degrees and 
stop for a minute or two and then started a slow ascent uh, s- straight up. And we were absolutely, our eyes were glued to this thing. And as it, as it got higher in the sky, the higher it got, the bigger it got. And the three points of light uh, spread out, all equidistant to one another. And Toby was the first to notice. He said, look, as it passes over a star, uh, passes through a star, the stars will blot out until it's passed and then blink back on. And I'm like, yeah, 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 I, can, I see that, I see that. So that means this thing must be one solid object and not three separate sources of light. So one light in each corner. A triangle, maybe? A perfect triangle. A perfect triangle, one light in each corner. Uh, And as this triangle, uh, like I said, we determined that it was one solid object. Uh, First of all, nobody could have choreographed three airplane lights to stay in that order. I mean, it was just impossible. How big was it? Solid object. They were a little bit dark, larger than the North Star. They were larger. They were the largest stars in the sky. Now, how big do you think the object? If you had to calculate the three, the three lights and the altitude on the distant horizon, on the distant horizon, they did not look big. It it looked small. It looked like something in the distance. Uh, But you know, without without with it being dark. I had nothing to gauge size or distance with, uh, and we just watched it rise up into the sky. And as I said, as it as it rose, the, the higher it got, the the bigger it got, and and it, and it was growing. I mean, exponentially. And instead of you know blinking out a star or two, eventually this thing is eating up whole entire fields of stars, and they're gone. Until it passes, and then they blink back on. That reminds me of the Phoenix Lights, almost. Yes. Yes. We're, we're yeah, kind of the same thing. This was one solid object. We, we knew it had to be. Uh, but what was odd was I, I had felt a little bit unnerved earlier about the tree frogs and the crickets and the, the forest being so silent. But all of that anxiety was gone. Uh, And I felt uh, calm, just serene. I mean, uh, I don't know. I don't know how to put it, but it was uh, no anxiety, uh, no no fear of any kind. Uh, I remember once Toby said, "Do you think that's anything to be afraid of?" And I said, "I I don't know. What's what's to be afraid of?" We watched it until this thing traveled until it was over the top of our heads. And I would guess it to be, I don't know, 1,500, 2,000 feet above us. And it ate up a giant triangle. And I mean, it was like if somebody took a scissors and cut, a, cut out a big triangle of the stars. It was just this black object. And the object was darker than the sky. And silent. Absolutely silent. And we sat there. Pardon me. We lay back. We were both on our air mattresses. And Toby said, you know, first he said, it's headed right for us. And I said, I I can see that. And we both noted that it just kind of stopped right over our heads. And then, then, odd as this sounds, we both 
were just disinterested. And I recall uh, Toby had a flashlight, a marginal flashlight. And he took this flashlight and said, you know, let me flash, let me, let me see if this thing will, what this will do. And I, I went to grab it out of his hands, but he, he took it and uh, he was an impulsive guy. And he flashed this uh, flashlight at this thing uh, three times. Uh, and he said, well, something ought to happen. Uh, and something did. Right from the center of, the, of this triangle, there came a beam of light. Uh, and it was about like a high-power searchlight through fog. So it was, a, it was a column of light that you could see. And it hit our campfire square in the middle. And it, it just blinked on. And as I said, it was from dead center of the triangle. And we're both kind of amused. And like, man, what is that? And we watch it, and it stays there for a couple of minutes, and it blinks out. And the second that it blinks out, uh, there's this pencil-thin laser light that uh, bluish-purple, uh, right from the center of the thing, shot down, and would it would appear at one spot, then blink out for a millisecond and then go somewhere else, and then for a mill- blink out for a millisecond, and then jump to another place. And it just darted all over the campground. And I, I know that it hit me a couple times. The light rested on me a couple times. I didn't feel anything. Almost like uh, if it was scanning. Yeah, exactly. And I know that it hit Toby, you know, a few times. Uh, and then it stopped. And a few minutes later, Toby says, well, show's over. Man, I'm beat. And I'm like, yeah, too, man. Let's call it a night. So, as crazy as it sounds, we've got this monstrous thing 2,000 feet above us, and we just have this little light show, and we go back, we, we crawl in the tent and call it a night. And I remember when I crawled into the tent, I, I felt almost sedated. I was so drowsy. Uh, I, I laid down on, on, this air, on my air mattress, and... Uh, Remember, the only thing I could hear was Toby snoring softly, and that was it. Uh, and I thought, huh, tree frogs never came back. And then I, I was asleep. And the next thing I remember was waking up, and there are these lights shining through the tent. Hold it right and there. I hate to do this, but I have to separate both segments. It's been over an hour, and we need to separate both segments. You're going to tell us the rest of the story. And this is when it gets incredible, folks. The details are incredible. You're listening to somebody who was in the military. Somebody who was a former attorney general. Who has absolutely nothing to gain by going public about this. And we're also making an exception. Usually the people who come into Vox Populate don't have a book. But I think it was your wife who had the vision to tell you that you needed to start documenting all these events on paper. And you decided to put this together. And I've read your book. I just finished it today. And it's riveting. How can people buy the book? The title and where to buy it, Terry? It's Incident at Devil's Den. And it's on sale now at Amazon. 
And do you have a website? Uh, I do have a website. Uh, well, I'm on Facebook at Incident at Devil's Den. And there's a link there to buy the book as well. Uh, and then I have a website. It's under construction, but, but visit it anyway and, and check in with me. Uh, it's alienabductiontexas.com. And, and I, it's, not, it's not the name for the website that I wanted, but Devil's Den is, is, a, is, is a popular name. I guess there are about 800 drinking establishments and motorcycle clubs called Devil's Den, so getting the domain name was, was difficult. So it's alienabductiontexas.com or on Facebook at Incident at Devil's Den. Well, folks, don't go anywhere. And anyone out there, that listens to this Vox Popular episode, as I always say, some people like Terry wait decades before they can talk, they can speak out about all what happened to them. Many of them just walk with their heads low, but know that Veritas is a platform. If we deem that your story is worthy to disseminate, please write to us. Go to our website, veritasradio.com, and click on the contact button. I am willing to listen. So folks, don't go anywhere. Much more. When we return, this is Mel Fabregas. You're listening to an episode of Vox Populi. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first part of this very important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the members section or subscribe at VeritasRadio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for MMS, hemp oil, pure organic sulfur, and other great products. Thank you. Zechariah 
message that the human race has probably been seeded here by high intelligence civilizations from other places. I think those who placed us here and those who have been intimately involved with our genetic manipulation of the world are Thank you.